2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Well, friends, we come to our final study and the life and work uh, of the Apostle Paul, and our subject for tonight is uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, battle uh, for a pure gospel church. The Apostle Paul's battle, and he faced many a battle uh, right from the beginning of his life, from his conversion, right unto the very end of his life, uh, which these, as you know, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, his very last recorded words. And uh, he was a battler from the time he was a believer right until the day of his death. He never took his hand you could say, of that spiritual sword, and used it uh, so wisely uh, for the Lord's sake. Nothing uh, could be more appropriate, really, for him uh, to, do, to write than what we have read here in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. And we all want to say that at the end of our, uh, our life here. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Well, friends, we are all, uh, to a certain degree, degree or other, engaged in this spiritual battle. And uh, Paul himself, again in Ephesians 6, reminded us of this. Put on the whole armor of God, uh, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now we are all aware, I'm sure, of that sort of battle, that battle uh, for sanctification, and that fight uh, against the enemy that is going on uh, day by day. It seems, in fact, that not a day goes by, hardly a day passes when we are not tried and tested and expected even by our Savior to engage the enemy and to use that shield of faith to ward off all the darts of the evil one. But the Apostle Paul really had so much more uh, to contend with than just those things. And he had a real fight on his hands often and from sources, not just outside the church, but uh, even from within the church. And uh, he had a real battle on his hands 
uh, for a pure uh, gospel and a pure church. One would think it's the early days of the Christian church. It's the early days of the New Testament church. Surely everything now is in its pure state. Surely everything is now uh, in such a perfect state, having come from the fountain itself. Surely everything is, is, is wonderful and there's no need for correction. Everyone is just following along and uh, listening and putting into practice everything that they are receiving uh, from uh, the apostles. But uh, unfortunately, it uh, didn't work uh, quite that way. Quite, we see this uh, in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Those early churches, we say, well, uh, they, they were so much better than what we are today. And that's true. And we often hear people saying, well, we wish we could take the church back to the, as it was in the early church. And that's also true, because there was still a long way ahead of us than what we, are, what we see uh, today happening amongst us. There the Lord's people would join in such a harmony uh, in, in so many instances and believing the right things. And yet, error still crept in. And yet, there was still uh, the work of the evil one to try and corrupt the message or to the, the, the method even in those early days. And in spite of the good things that were happening there and there were tremendous blessings there, we have to remember uh, that one thing that we share in common with the people there is that there were people there. <laughs> there were, and wherever you have people, well, you're going to have people coming up with their own ideas and not everyone being as compliant as they ought to be and submitting to the will of God. Error very quickly, in fact, comes into the uh, early churches and needs to be corrected. And even if you read church history, uh, you, you'll notice time and again uh, different errors crop up. Often they are repeated errors, even about the deity of Christ. Well, that's a very old error. You can trace it back to the, the second century. And uh, it's, it's something that was uh, first century even, and it was denied uh, by, by many people, even as it, it is denied uh, today. So uh, problems there were in the church. And wherever you have people, sadly, uh, you're going to have uh, issues coming up. Now, when uh, Christians today uh, battle for a pure church and a pure gospel, uh, they are not unaware, uh, those, sorry, that are unaware of Paul's battles in, in the Bible, those who are, we could say, unfamiliar with Paul's teaching in the scriptures, they may get it wrong. They may, they may sort of come up and uh, murmur and complain and get upset uh, about wh why are you battling these things? Why are you raising these particular issues? Why don't you? Why are you judging? Is often the word that we come across. Why are you being so critical? Sadly, there are people, and I've come across some recently, more than one, uh, who almost and they are reticent to say anything that's wrong with the church. Not that we want to volunteer and have a critical uh, spirit and always be fault finding. No. But we have to have our wits about us, our spiritual wits about us, so that if we see things that are unbiblical in churches or unbiblical teaching that's happening, we're able to point it out. We're able to, to understand these things and uh, to say something if that's uh, the right thing for us to do at that particular time. So it's vital for us to know, well, what was Paul battling, Paul's battles? Because, in fact, 
uh, we, are, we probably are fighting almost exactly the same battles that he fought in his day. And perhaps that's why they are recorded for us in Scripture. As they were then, you'll find they are in history, and they are very similar uh, for today. Now, this uh, case is a, it's actually a very big, uh, uh, this uh, issue is actually a very big subject, and all I can do tonight is give you really a bird's eye view of some of the battles and the, the battlefronts uh, that uh, the apostle was fighting on. And uh, firstly, I want to look at Galatians uh, chapter 1. And in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, the apostle Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have pre preached unto you, let him be accursed. And again, verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. These are very strong words. And we, have to, we are astonished by what uh, Paul is saying here. But what does he mean? Oh, well, you can see that he's battling. You can see that he's fighting for something. And he's fighting uh, for the true gospel. Uh, this another gospel, verse 6, uh, has come uh, in amongst the Galatians. And that's a perversion of the true gospel, verse 7. It's another, any, and Paul says, if anyone preach any other gospel than that which you have received, and a very, very strong word, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Well now, what was the other gospel that came in to the Galatian church? Well, simply put, friends, it's a gospel that says uh, in any way, whatever, even in the slightest way, there is something we can do to save ourselves. That's what it was, very simple. There's something you can add to what Christ has done in order to save yourself. Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and something else. Whatever the and is, it might be a small thing, a big thing, you're adding something to the gospel. That's what uh, Paul is contending uh, with these Galatians here. They're believers, they're a church. Uh, but amongst them had come the Judaizers, and they were the source of this other gospel. Judaizers, uh, possibly Jewish believers uh, who were making a big mistake and uh, were misguided or more likely uh, Jewish uh, leaders that saw uh, that this new Christianity was so widely believed and they were uh, not following the Jewish uh, rules and regulations and ceremonials and so they tried to bring it, this new sect under their control. Their agenda was very straightforward. The believers had to be Jews first, or Jews and Christian. They had to be circumcised and as well as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to keep the law of Moses. They had to obey the Old Testament ceremonies. And so Paul sees through this immediately. He's got the discernment to see, and he's having none of it. This is such a vital issue. This is crucial to a person's uh, salvation. And he's got an almighty battle on his hands to get this straight. 
And in fact, uh, he, is, he has to be even very strong with other apostles. The apostle Peter uh, was also uh, addressed in this chapter, chapter 2 and verse 11. Uh, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. As, and, uh, so uh, Paul uh, here is, is uh, very adamant and uh, determined to maintain the purity of the gospel. What is the, his gospel? Well, chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And again, Galatians 3, verse 6. He uses Abraham as the example. Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He didn't earn his righteousness. It was by faith in Christ. Uh, that he got his righteousness. And again, verse 11, same chapter. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith, or the just by his faith shall live. That's it. That's the Paul reminding them, this is the pure gospel. It's only by faith in Christ that salvation can be had. And even your faith is a gift from God. So this is uh, his teaching. And another gospel uh, that even in the slightest way says there is something that we can do uh, to be saved is a false gospel and deserves that anathema uh, that, that he reserves uh, for it. So Paul constantly uh, has to battle uh, against this. You remember, he had to also go down, uh, he and Barnabas uh, had to go down from Antioch uh, to Jerusalem to settle uh, this uh, similar matter and he had to go uh, to the apostles and the apostles uh, had to uh, and, uh, the apostles had to uh, confirm uh, that it's not uh, necessary for for them to the the gentiles to follow uh, jewish traditions and it's only uh, by faith uh, in christ that had to be confirmed so this is what paul uh, is having to do uh, constantly throughout uh, his ministry we find that this was the bane of Paul's life. It was the Jews that in the end, from a human point of view, also we could say, drove Paul to appeal to Caesar. So the battle continues, friends, uh, not only for him, who is now passed into glory, but even for us. Uh, with many today in the so-called Christian church, it's a battle, uh, how are we to be saved? How are we to come to know true salvation? Well, you know what's very common is that people say you, you have to make a decision. You have to decide for Christ. Well, there's a point in that. You have to, at a certain point, uh, decide for Christ. But their teaching is along the lines of a, a mental decision is all that's required of you. You don't have to, you, know, as you only have to assent to, uh, to the teachings of Christ in an intellectual way. And it's that assent, that decision itself, that saves you. But Paul and, and the Bible tell us that it's not so. We can do nothing to save ourselves. God saves us as we cry out to him in repentance and faith. But it is God even that enables us 
to believe in him, to take that step of faith. It's he who moves our hearts, isn't it, uh, to receive uh, the Lord in the first place. We would never have decided to follow Christ unless he had first initiated that work and moved us uh, to do it. That's why we have a little bit of a problem with the Alpha Course. The Alpha Course, I'm sure which you've heard of, one of the things that we find an issue, well, it, it goes through, a, it's a course, uh, and it teaches things, facts from the Bible, and at the end of that, you have a weekend away, and that, that weekend away, people are almost, not coerced, but they are very much encouraged uh, to make a decision for Christ. And now you have the information, now you have the knowledge, this is what you ought to do. And people slip into a, a profession of faith through that means without knowing true heart conversion and the Spirit of God changing their hearts and really being saved. So uh, that's a little bit of a, uh, that's why we don't have the Alpha course recommended uh, to people. But there are all, all sorts, friends, of similar procedures even for making people so-called uh, Christians which really just amount to mental assent uh, to the truth, the truths of uh, Christianity. And that they say, oh, it's, it's uh, your lack of the truth uh, and your mental agreement. Uh, that's the thing, they say, that actually uh, saves us. And in fact, many say, once you've made such a de decision, you're saved. Don't doubt it, they tell you. But actually, it should be doubted. But even belief, when we think of faith, it's clearly seen in the New Testament teaching as a gift uh, from God. It's belief that saves us, a belief in Christ. We cannot be saved without belief and trusting in the Lord and what Christ has done, that tremendous work on Calvary. But uh, if we, in a, even in a very small way, uh, say to ourselves, oh, I'm saved because I believe, well, that's wrong. That would again be adding something to it. We'll be putting belief down to something in you and I. And we can't do that. Even, uh, uh, even our faith cannot save. It's Christ that saves us. We must get this clear in our minds. God saves us, and as a consequence of his grace towards us, we believe and we trust. It's all of grace. It's all of God. Even our, our very actings. And as soon as we introduce anything that we do as a means of our salvation, then it becomes another gospel. So uh, we see this, of course, very clearly uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And some of us have come from that background. Well, you know what a person does in the Roman Catholic Church is what counts. That's what saves a person. He comes to church, he partakes the Mass, he's baptized as a, as a child, he's confirmed, uh, he goes to confession, he pays his... His, his money, his dues, and as long as he's somewhat obedient and stays within the mother church, well, his salvation is guaranteed, and uh, he's saved by his works. But many forms of salvation, in fact, all other religions as well, outside the church, are very similar uh, to that. It's saved by what you do. Go to Mecca, keep the seven, uh, keep, uh, keep the rules, uh, for that or in the other religions it's all the same thing what you do only Christianity is unique in this aspect so friends the battle even within the church uh, still goes on uh, for that pure gospel and how we need people to 
just hear that message because it's so against our pride. You just need to throw yourself on the mercy of God and cry to Him for, for mercy and pardon and forgiveness and life, and then you will be saved. Now, in Paul's battle for a pure gospel, uh, he not only battled for the message and how we are to be saved, but also the method was really important to him. And he didn't treat this lightly. Today, people are doing that, isn't it? Any way it goes. It doesn't matter how you present the gospel as long as the message is there. No, 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 says Paul. The method is critical as well. How you present it. 1 Corinthians 1, verses uh, 21 to 23. And Paul's going to say here, it's not by singing or a, a beat group or drama, which is also a big thing in Paul's day. But he says these words. After that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So even uh, so, here Paul is already emphasizing the need for preaching, and the preaching also itself. He's very emphatic with this in the Corinthian church, has to be of a certain kind. It's not got to be the, the preacher, pastor, getting up and using his oratorical skills to dazzle the crowds and to win them to Christ in that way. That's not, that's not what the kind of preaching that's, uh, that's in, in mind here. Nor no em emotional manipulation, telling sob stories and getting the people to weep and cry and emotionally turn, or bringing drug addicks onto the ex-drug addicts. And, and you know, people are emotionally turned to Christ when they hear these stories in the wrong way. And uh, just his method is take the scriptures, argue the points, reason with souls, exhort souls, explain the scriptures, and then uh, the facts of the gospel, and then apply it to people. And this is very simple method. But today, it's uh, looked down on, isn't it? It's frowned on. Today, people say, oh, this is foolish. This is outdated. Uh, preaching doesn't work anymore. Uh, it's, it's not for today. People don't want to sit and listen to a 30-minute sermon anymore. They haven't got time for that. They only want a YouTube short. Well, uh, we need to maintain preaching, friends, in spite of our modern world and the modern day attention, even whatever the, the excuse may be, but we need to maintain preaching. It's a battle that we must fight in this church. If we do not believe in preaching and personal witness to win people to Christ, then what we are saying really is the New Testament has got it wrong, and it's not sufficient. Well, these are some of Paul's battles for a pure gospel and how to get the message across. But what about a pure church? another issue. And there are so many problems with the church today, sadly, uh, that we don't really know where to start. Well, we can just mention a few things in passing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't need to turn to it, but it's the case of the, the fornicator who was found uh, in membership in the Corinthian church. And Paul, you know, had to remonstrate uh, with the church and to urge them and almost force them to deal with it by putting the member out. 
That's what he advised them to do. He urged them to use church discipline. And so for, for Paul, and this is just one example, uh, there, is, uh, there is behavior from professing Christians that is unacceptable, and such must be dealt with. And in such a case, uh, church discipline is necessary. Well, friends, you hardly hear about church discipline uh, today. It's such a big subject, and uh, one that we, can, we, we haven't got time to go into, but many churches never discipline other uh, believers for wrongdoing, or we don't, we, we don't go, go into small things. Usually it's something scandalous uh, that uh, needs uh, disciplining. But there was a time when uh, worldliness or coldness, uh, non-attendance even, even uncooperativeness, un all was dealt with by the church in the way of church discipline. Well, that's uh, uh, an issue, isn't it? Which the church, we, uh, something else we need to maintain. Then there is the battle which we have, uh, where we have a very strong interest in, and that's the battle for an independent church. And Paul was a great stalwart for this. Uh, when you read Acts 15, and uh, the coming together there of Paul, that uh, well, we've mentioned already, Paul and Barnabas coming from Antioch and going down to Jerusalem, our Presbyterian friends will see that as a presbytery. They will see that as a council of churches. Aha! This is where we have our first council of churches, a group of churches coming together to make a decision. And it's not anything like that, friends. They say this is the first recorded synod. And uh, that's what they, a lot of them base their church government on that, on that verse and that chapter. But friends, that's not really what it was. What it was in Acts 15 was a problem between uh, two independent churches, the church at Antioch in Syria and uh, uh, the church also at Jerusalem. And the Judaizers had gone to Antioch and it caused all, all that trouble. And so Paul and Barnabas have go down uh, to Jerusalem to, uh, to discuss the matter, to clear rather the matter, uh, between, but it's only between the two churches. It's not a council of churches all getting uh, involved to sort out the problem. The apostles were there, and they gave a very clear judgment on the problem, what needed uh, to be done. In fact, Paul wanted uh, the apostles to really, put his, uh, to, to really deal with the Judaizers and, 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 and not to allow them to uh, go around uh, uh, speaking in this way, but to really... Uh, put his, their foot down uh, uh, where they were concerned. But friends, the, the point here is it was a meeting of two independent churches to sort out a problem, not a presbytery. No other churches were involved. And there were many churches in Samaria who could have been involved, uh, but they, they were not there. There's no record of them joining in. And then again, another issue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 14. You don't need to turn to it now, but we are told that withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. And separation is another thing that we need to be uh, concerned about. Ecumenicalism uh, is something that is prevalent uh, today. And the battle continues uh, for separation. 
we must stand clear of those who are joined and, and mixed up with all sorts of error. We have to be, uh, we, ha we cannot be tainted with other people's error. We cannot be lumped together with that. And sometimes we find that churches are uh, involved with other groups where there are the most glaring errors, errors. Uh, associations with modernism and other churches who are even linked with the Church of Rome. And they don't see it as an issue. They think it's okay uh, to meet together. We have in our own uh, neighborhood the churches together, all the different combination of churches getting together. And I get emails all the time, almost every week, uh, uh, from this group who are meeting here, inviting, uh, inviting me to go. But also, I happened to see on a church uh, this week, and they were a Presbyterian church in America. And I just happened to see the notices. The guy came to the front. That he was giving the notices at the beginning of the meeting. And he said, oh, this week is uh, Ash Wednesday. Uh, so if you'd like to have the imposition of the ashes on your forehead, come on Wednesday. And imposition ashes, you know, real ashes and do something, uh, maybe a sign of the cross or something uh, on your forehead. And I was shocked because this is a Presbyterian church. I think, is this a Catholic church? It's a Presbyterian. And then later on, somebody came uh, down the aisle carrying uh, a candle lighter and lit the candles which are at the front uh, of the church. And again, well, this is, this is uh, Catholicism, isn't it? And yet their name is, came, uh, their name is a Presbyterian church. Uh, church. Well, friends, uh, we have to be careful about that. Then what about worship? Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and verse 26. Uh, you can look at that. It says there, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revel revelation, hath an interpretation, that all things be done unto edifying. And here again, in this chapter, Paul is fighting for order in worship in the church. Again, something so relevant for our day. At that time, the teaching body who are referred to here, it's not the whole church uh, who had a psalm, although that's what some people think today. Everyone has something to give. Let everyone participate uh, in the service. That's wrong. That's the wrong way of looking at church. Church is not meant to be like that. Everyone playing a part. It's the teaching body that is here being addressed in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26. But the trouble was at that time, when this, these teachers, one of them perhaps received, a, uh, during the meeting, received a psalm, another one received a word of exhortation, another one had a doctrine or a tongue, uh, they would just say it as it came to them, as put in modern day language, as they were led. It was during the meeting. And so there was no order to the meeting. It was disorderly. And Paul is here battling for church order. And uh, he is actually a rebuke. And in verse 40, he says to them, let all things be done decently and in order. And then in, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul gives us the rules for worship to a larger extent. And many of these, sadly, are ignored in places of worship today. So friends, you can see, isn't it, that things that Paul is having to handle and address 
are things that we have to handle and address today. We cannot go into a corner. <laughs> we cannot say, it doesn't involve me. I, I can just carry on in my own way and, and you know, serve the Lord. No, we are. We have to uh, be involved in these battles too. It's not just the role of the church uh, elders. But friends, there is another area uh, of difficulty today also. And Paul uh, spoke about uh, leadership uh, in the church. And that's something also that needs addressing. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Well, we are very careful to see that the elders are ruled by the scriptures, that any authority that they have is strictly that of the word of God. Of course, there's no authority in the pastor or the elders. It's only in the Word of God. That is our authority in the church. But we live in anti-authority days. And so in so many churches, it's also evident. What is happening in the world is being uh, mimicked, as it were, in the church. And people don't like authority in the world, and people don't like being told what to do in the church. Uh, if it's a true belief, I believe, like we said last week, they'd be willing to be told uh, what to do. But so many pastors are not allowed to lead and to direct, uh, to say uh, what needs to be said. They, they cannot, uh, or they, they do not insist on uh, Christian duty and behavior as much, perhaps, as they ought to do. And part of the problem is the listeners don't want to know. Sometimes it's the problem uh, with the, the elders and the leaders, um, and they give a bad example themselves, but people often don't like to be told, this is what the Bible says, how you must live your life, how you must form your life according to these principles. And they, they don't want to be told, uh, told that, but Paul uh, had to deal with these things, and also those whom he assigned to churches had to deal with it. You remember how Poor Titus. He sent Titus to, to Crete. And we have to feel sorry for Titus because it was a really difficult job that he had on his hands. These were not just malleable people that he was sent to who would just listen to him. Listen to uh, the description and the, the, the word that Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1. He tells them to hold fast the faith, to, uh, tell them to hold fast the faithful word as he had been taught. And sorry, that, that Titus has been told that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That's what they were gainsayers there. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. This is in the church, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Those are strong words. Those are strong characters of people, the Cretans. And uh, Titus had to deal with it. He couldn't turn a blind eye to it and just uh, preach, uh, preach away. So uh, a battle that must be faced. Well, <coughs> friends, one, one of the biggest battles that we must mention and that Paul everywhere in his letters uh, fought for, as we come to a close, is the spirituality uh, of uh, believers. And this is so crucial. 
for us. Colossians chapter 3, you know it well. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, he tells them, on things above, not on things on the earth. Remember who you are, you're dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. This is vital as well. And it takes up uh, the majority of our preaching to believers. Uh, we must, friends, uh, contend for true uh, Christian living. And one area that he especially highlights again and again, and he fought over, is that of covetousness. There seem to be so many references to this uh, from the Apostles' writing. You can do a study in your own time. But we wonder if today Christians have thought about this subject. Covetousness, well, it's not so easy to define, but here are five things to mention about covetousness. When the heart is set on getting on in this world. Two, when money or status is the key to our happiness. Three, when the pursuit of material things seriously damages our worship and service for the Lord. Or fourthly, when the desire for more is to do with pride, wanting to be seen as successful or in a position of power. Five, when we simply just want more and more. So uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, we have to learn contentment. In the midst of covetousness, uh, that we must learn to be content. Remember, you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out. And he goes on to say, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And yet, in spite of these teachings, you can guarantee that the majority of even the best churches in our land are really riddled with this covetousness. And perhaps that's the reason why a few, uh, so few in the church will serve the Lord and be faithful to the cause. And even in many cases, why so many only turn up to one or two uh, meetings uh, at the most. So friends, a, a tremendous battle is on and you can see it uh, for yourselves. It's a battle for people's hearts and minds. But then, uh, in closing, we just return uh, to that first battle that was mentioned. Are people really saved? Now, there's a lot of talk, a lot of apologetic talk uh, which is going on in the church and that's all uh, well and good, but sometimes it comes across as though just let the, the issue of atheism and creationism, let creation win the day and we will win the battle. Uh, that, it's sometimes put across in that way, but that's not quite right. Other people like Francis Schaeffer, well, they lay all the problems of the Christian church at the door of the failure of many Christians to live consecrated lives, zealous lives. Well, that's commendable, but even those views don't, addre don't address the real issue, the real problem uh, in, this, in the large proportion of the so-called Christian church. And the real problem is this, there are sadly many who are not converted, not truly converted, who have a, made a profession but have never been born again of the Spirit, never been 
changed uh, from, never had that radical change in their life. And they're still trying to be Christians or have the appearance of Christianity, but haven't had the change in their heart. And so the battle is on for a pure church. That's the, the initial uh, uh, blueprint for the church is not just anyone comes in who makes a profession, but those who are genuinely converted. Now, it's possible for an unbeliever to enter in, but the, the elders must, as it were, and the church as a whole, membership, must, must be involved in trying to maintain a pure membership. And uh, this is so vital for us uh, in today. It was a battle in Paul's day, a regenerate church membership, and it's the battle for us today. Well, this is Paul. <laughs> what a tremendous life uh, from even before his conversion, the preparation through to his conversion. What a life he lived, serving the Lord. We're young. Some of you are young, a lot younger than we are, and you have a whole life ahead of you. What can God do with you if you yielded up uh, to him and given over to him? Here is the battles for us to face, the battles that he faced all his life. Faithful he was uh, to his, uh, to his uh, Savior right until the very end. And may be the same uh, for us. What a man uh, to follow. Of course, by God's grace, he was what he was. And uh, may we be able to say with him, uh, these words which I read again from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Amen.